0: Well, good to be with you. Um, I usually speak on three subjects. One is uh, the gospel of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, its relevance to us. Or I spend my time just uh, helping Christians be able to communicate that wonderful good news to other people who don't know him. And the third thing I find myself doing a lot now is speaking about the subject of revival. So it's a thrill to be with you. And uh, buckle your seatbelt because this is an exciting subject. I want to tell you a true story. If you study revival, the first thing you'll come across is a man called Edwin Orr. Uh, He's a noted author, uh, but he's also an authority on revival. He's not alive now, but he tells this true story of driving through an American small town. Uh, If you know America, maybe there's some Americans here, there's lots of church buildings down most streets. And so he came across the first church and outside was a big billboard and the billboard read like this, it said Revival here every Monday night. And he drove just a few hundred yards and outside another church building there was another big billboard and it said Revival here every night except Monday. And uh, that illustrates the whole point that someone has said that the word revival is the most misused word or one of the most misused words in the English language the first thing I want to say is it's not just someone being enthusiastic about Jesus now if you're a Christian you should be enthusiastic about Jesus Uh, but we don't call that revival revival is something that can only be explained by God coming down by God coming down there's no publicity it's not about, um, like a man called J. John recently, last year, and gathered the largest crowd since Billy Graham uh, just to share the gospel with. And then they gathered, sadly, in Arsenal football grounds. And um, <laughs> Sorry about that, man. And the, um, but that isn't revival. That's just a man speaking to a large crowd. It's wonderful, but it's not revival. Um, The first revival most probably because we need a template and the template really is Acts chapter 2. So coming up behind me should be a few verses now. If you've got a Bible you might want to turn there but you don't need to because the verses will just come on the screen. So let me just read this to you. When the day of Pentecost came they were all together in one place. There was 120 of the first Christians in one place. They were quite discouraged really. Their leader, Jesus, had been crucified. And although he had appeared to them, it hadn't fully sunk in. And the first thing that happens in revival is that Christians get revived. Revival starts with Christians. And the disciples needed that reviving. Then we read that a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them and then we read all of them it's one of my favorite phrases in the bible it's all of them because when you become a christian god loves to come and touch all of his people it's not just a specialized bunch he loves to come and meet anybody who bears his name who's part of his family and he filled them with his holy spirit You can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And uh, now we read in verse 5, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. So the place was packed. It's one of the festivals, population... Some people say it more than trebled um, in these festival times. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because revival, although it starts by reviving believers... It then spreads to people who don't know Jesus, and that's what we see here. And a crowd were were amazed. What's going on? Look, these are Galileans. We hear them speaking in our own language. Please explain yourself. And they uh, they ask lots of questions. In verse twelve, we read this: Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another. When people first encounter God, they are amazed and perplexed we're told that God is dead we're told he's not irrelevant we're told he's just a crutch for the weak but when the one who is appears we are amazed and perplexed that's our response to him and some made fun and they said they're drunk basically and then Peter stood up and this is another factor in revival that God annoys particular people and they stand up And they preach God's word. And we'll say a bit more about that later on. And he spoke, and he spoke from um, the Old Testament, from a a passage from Joel. And he said, look, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. See, we need to explain to people what's going on. And he said, these people aren't drunk. Um, It's what Joel spoke about. And as he went and shared about Jesus, we read this that the people listening were cut to the very heart. We today would call that like a precision laser cut. But that phrase wasn't sort of in vogue at the time. People didn't know about lasers. But they were cut to the very heart. God had their attention. He grabbed their attention. The living God. And they replied, what should we do? Because when God grabs your attention, the first thing you're aware of is that a response is required. I'm not in a good place. I'm pretty dirty, actually. I might hide it from others, but I can't hide it from God. And Peter said, you need to repent and be baptized. Turn away from your sin. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. For the forgiveness of your sins. You can find forgiveness of sin. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And we read this incredible line. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And that's a staggering piece of maths. It's 120 plus 3,000 in one day. Now you just imagine if 3,000 people suddenly got added to you in one day. I mean, you couldn't fit in here to start with. That's what happens when God comes. It's a wonderful template and a springboard for revival. And one of the things that I want to thrill you with is this, is that particularly since the Reformation, but even before that with the, uh, John Wycliffe and the Lollards, God has visited the British Isles on many, many occasions in revival power. An American theologian called Jonathan Edwards said this. He said that when God does large-scale evangelism, he brings revival, and he loves to do that in every generation. Someone else said this, is that revival can be defined this way that God gets so fed up with being misrepresented that he comes down himself. So we need a definition, and here's a definition for you. Our friends. I used to work with this man in Brighton and for many years, and he uh, gives us a helpful definition. He says, I personally embraced what would tend to be the classic British evangelical view of revival, mainly a time of fresh activity of the Holy Spirit first amongst Christians, often leading to repentance and renewed devotion and prayer. And this, in turn, developing into evangelistic breakthrough and conviction of sin among the lost, leading to multiplied conversions and ultimately resulting in a transforming impact on the culture. Now we tend to start with the end. We tend to think a revival is a transforming impact on the culture and it ends there. But it starts, and that's why I'm here today, in your year of prayer which i think is very highly significant to say to you the revival starts when god captures the heart of his people that's when it starts a man called douglas brown um, who was an invited speaker he was just a guest speaker in Lowestoft and great yarmouth in 1921 uh, he saw god suddenly come in power when he was there completely surprising it was very much as suddenly as unexpected it wasn't announced, it wasn't prophesied and a year later in Keswick Convention he said this, that revival is not about theology, it involves theology but it's actually it starts with a theophany a meeting with the risen Jesus it's when Jesus suddenly gets very very close and personal with you That he's in the room. He's with you. He's your Lord and your Saviour. He's alive. That's what happens when revival starts. And so we give this very, very helpful definition. But I want to say here to you, there isn't a mould in heaven called revival. It's not like, you know, you buy, and when I was a kid, you you, you buy jelly moulds and you, make, you, know, you put it and everything looks the same. Or a sandcastle and everything gets the same. There's not a mould in heaven called revival. God is more creative than that. And uh, everything is different. But having said that, there are some common features. And I want to just briefly look at four to excite you. And the first one is prayer. And I will say this, that as you study revival... There's always loads and loads of examples of either people who are used in revival, to bring revival, starting to pray, or those who've been revived starting to pray as well. And one of the interesting things as someone who has the privilege of travelling the country is I'm noticing the green shoots are appearing again right now. That it's not, not uncommon to meet people who say we're praying for revival. And I would encourage you in this year of prayer, if I would strongly encourage you, I feel God saying to you actually, I nearly want to prophesy it to you, that that God would grab your attention with this word and for you to pray about it here. Leeds needs revival. So give me some examples, Mike. Well, here are a few. So at a prayer meeting in Edinburgh in 1905, uh, it happened in a place called Charlotte Chapel a fresh wave came on the church and the fire just fell quite suddenly. Upon each of them came an overwhelming sense of the reality and the awfulness in the sense of his majesty, of God. God suddenly came into the building and everybody was suddenly aware of eternal matters. You know, most people today, secular Britain is caught up with being uh, self-satisfied, self-educated, self-opinionated and caught up in its own kind of greed, really, isn't it? And yet, we hardly think of eternal matters. We just think of, what am I going to do in my life now? But unless you suddenly encounter death, particularly from a family member, it's just not on our minds. But when God comes, suddenly this whole thing is forefront in people's thinking life, death, and eternity are laid bare and suddenly very, very challenging. Prayer and weeping began in this place and it mingled with shouts of joy. And I would put it to you, that's a common theme you find, these two things happening all the time. Sometimes in revival, things look fairly orderly, but mostly in revival, it looks fairly messy. And you find this combination, both of amazing emotion Weeping, crying, we'll say more about that in a minute. But also it's mingled with shouts of joy. And people sang on their knees, oblivious of those around them. And as I said this morning to the North congregation, that when you find Brits oblivious to those around them, you are aware God's doing something. (laughs) Then what happened is wave after wave of prayer broke out. Uh, One participant commented, I can't tell you how much Christ meant to me that night. My heart was full to overflowing. I was so conscious of how near Jesus was to me that night. In the Yarmouth and Galston Times, the equivalent of us reading the Yorkshire Post, on the 10th of November we read this. It was a headline. It says, God has become very near. And the secret of it all can be summed up in one word, prayer. Prayer. At one particular church in uh, Lowestoft London Road Baptist Church, they gathered 60 people who prayed for nothing but revival for six months before it broke out. I tell you, it's time for us to pray for revival, for God to come amongst us to come and change a secular Britain. We see some encouraging things. The biggest crowd gathers since Billy Graham. Two million people in Britain have been through the Alpha course. We're told from the independent newspaper that suddenly the number of Christians isn't declining anymore. But the same papers tell us that although there are some sparks of light, the background gets darker. And 50% of Britain doesn't not believe anything. It's secular. It's atheistic in its viewpoint. And it's into this mess, I guess, that God loves to step. The living God. He loves to step and show his glory and his power and his incredible mercy as well. Hmm. The second thing we find here is that powerful penetrating preaching is a feature of revival and this preaching is often called awakening preaching. Preachers know that they're servants of the Most High, Uh, they're also aware of the awesome responsibility they carry and the serious task of their calling as well. They carry a deep sense of of the tragedy of men and women dying without Christ. And the urgent desire to lead people to repentance and faith before it's too late. I met a friend recently. He said he takes various weddings. He's a farmer in Yorkshire. He's Mr. Average. And uh, he takes weddings and funerals occasionally. And he said at every funeral, he always speaks to the people who have come to grieve the loss of their friend or family member with these kind of words he says people say that when you die that's the end I want to challenge that comment he says for instance if a brand new baby is born and you hold it in your arms the sense is it's come from somewhere so therefore it's most probably more than likely that when you die you're going somewhere as well. You see, we aren't just a cosmic accident. We're not just a bunch of random atoms. There's a designer and his name is God. And one day we'll stand before him. And one day we'll give an account of our life for there are only two locations that we're going to. And that's what comes out as people preach. When Methodism was threatening to settle down into dead formality, not many years after Wesley's death in 1791, God suddenly anointed such people as a man called John Benton. John Benton was an unlearned, ignorant man, and his preaching produced the same kind of effects that Peter did on people. In other words, they were cut to their very heart cut to their very heart by the Spirit of God working in them. Often the anointed preacher carries the revival wherever they go. They carry it with them. In 1739, Whitfield, George Whitfield, you may have heard of him, he was challenged to try and convert the coal miners of Kingswood. This a place called Rose Green. I met a man recently in London who grew up there. And he told me that his Play school. His you know, school was in Rose Green, the very place that George Whitfield spoke to 200 miners. He told me that uh, history books tell you this: that basically Whitfield was barred from preaching in church buildings, and so he was on his way to lunch near the Kingswood area. The Kingswood area, or Rose Green, was a noted area. Uh, there was no church there. The people were rough and tough. We're told that the average sailor of the day the press gang sailor that you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley well they wouldn't go to to Kingswood but George Whitfield with the courage of the Holy Spirit saw 200 men coming up from the pit and spoke to them there and then and had a tremendous effect on them he went back three days later and there were suddenly hundreds of them there hearing about the compassion and the love of a God who cares, of a God who is, of a God who created us in his image, of a God who if we don't know him, we don't function properly. And he preached his heart out. And a few days later, he went and we're told that there were thousands there. Thousands listening to him. In fact, he writes in his own journal, At four, I hastened to Kingswood. There were about 10,000 people to hear me. The trees and the hedges were full of people. All was hushed when I began. The sun shone bright and God enabled me to preach for an hour with great power and so loudly that I was told all could hear me. And what happened there is that these blackened faces of hardened miners who, who have been, never been told that somebody loves them, really, and that someone was the living God, the most important person that could ever love you, love them. And we found that their blackened faces, tears of repentance, suddenly welled up, and it made, as their tears went down their, their blackened cheeks, you could see these white gutters, is the description. That's what happens when God... Comes amongst people that's what happens in revival the third aspect of this that I want to talk about is conviction of sin because God is described as a holy God holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty it's not a word we even use today we often have no reference to understand it completely different separate from anything else a holy God cannot stand in the presence of sinful men and women and yet he loves to come amongst his people with his mercy and when he does it produces a, a tremendous sense of conviction a conviction of sin it overpowers people and for a time it kind of just holds them captive. And so they groan and they are suddenly aware of their dirt. And, the, and you know even the, the deep crevices, crevices of their life, the Spirit of God shines His light in and it cannot be hidden anymore. And they groan and it's very public and it suddenly comes out really. It's, it's, not, it's not kind of deep, it's on the surface of their lives now. But this deep cut of conviction eventually leads to great outbursts of joy because they understand that the central message of the living God who loves them is that he sent himself in the form of his son to die on a cross instead of them dying it's a great substitution and that's the message that comes out here and, and it leads therefore to acceptance and forgiveness And it leads to people groaning under deep conviction of sin. Sometimes it was strong fishermen in the public arena, in the marketplace, groaning because of the power of the gospel and the heavy conviction of sin. But it leads to unbridled joy because I am now right with God. Oh, That's amazing grace. That really is. And it's impossible to read about revival without understanding that prayer and preaching first leads to conviction of sin. Here's one of my favourite stories, I'm sure you've heard this. I've had the thrill of going to this place on more than one occasion. Not very far from where these guys live, in, in this case in Northern Ireland. So it's Coleraine. So in one of the schools in Colrain people came under conviction the 1858 revival had started in a place called Hamilton Ontario it spread down to New York it swept across America it came to Ulster it came to Scotland it came to England it came to Wales and in Ulster particularly a man called James McQuill started to pray he'd only been converted a year before he was a young convert And he gathered three three friends and they started to pray for God to move in Ulster. And the first convert came and then the next. And suddenly this revival. And Ian Paisley of all people says that 100,000 people were swept up in this great move of God. It's incredible, isn't it? eh? So this young boy was suddenly feeling ill. Well, the teacher thought he was ill. He wasn't ill at all. This wasn't, I'm trying to get off school. He was under deep conviction of sin. And so the teacher sent him home and he went with an older boy. Unfortunately, the older boy had just become a Christian the day before. So the older boy recognized the symptoms. And basically, they stopped in a house halfway home and he led him to Christ. And the young boy was suddenly feeling so much better. And he actually said, I've got to go back and tell the teacher. So they went back. And with a beaming face, he said, Sir, I'm so happy. I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. And the whole class was so deeply affected that boy after boy, rose, went out of the classroom, into the playground, and when the teacher went out, they were ranged around the, the playground on their knees, crying out for mercy. And such was the intensity of what was happening in their lives that their noise and groaning... It went up a floor to the girls school and as soon as that groaning happened the girls were on their knees crying out for mercy the whole school was crying out for mercy silent prayer gave way to loud cries and the commotion carried into the streets neighbors and passers-by came flocking in and as soon as they crossed the threshold they all came under the same convicting power Ministers came to help, and the day was spent leading young and old to saving faith in Christ. Meals were forgotten. It's not a sign of revival when you forget meals. And the work continued until 11 that night. Just two or three quick examples. When God came to Cornwall in 1814, people spoke about penitential pain. It was their great distress over their sin. At a particular location called Tuckin Mill, a meeting lasted for six days. And so you came here, we came here tonight, and it went on for six days. I mean, people came and went, but the meeting didn't stop. That's the kind of thing that happens in revival. Meetings get extended. You're unaware of your watch. You know, it's a bit like going to India. You don't need a watch, or Africa. Such pain was experienced by some people that they remained in great distress for hours before the Lord spoke peace to their souls. Then they would raise their arms and proclaim the wonderful works of God. I found peace with God. Have you found peace with God? Have you found peace with God? It's the most important question you ever have to answer in life. But deep and painful conviction of sin is an inevitable part of true revival. I put it to you that we mustn't have a tinted view of this subject. Swelling numbers, times of refreshing, glory and joy, people queuing up to get into church buildings. That does happen, but it's only part of the story because before all the joy comes conviction. And again, this starts in the life of God's people before it starts to touch people who don't know God. You and I are the initial target of revival. Fourth and lastly, true revival always produces lasting converts and it raises the social and moral standard of the community. Let just read you a little passage here. It's the book I've been trying to write here. In the Welsh Revival of 1904, it's often referred to as the Evan Roberts Revival, although something else was happening in the north with an unpronounceable Welsh name. Listen, I've lived in Wales for four years, and even I can't pronounce his name. But Evan Roberts became a household name. In some homes, his picture hung on the parlour wall. The nature and impact of, on society of this revival reads like this. 17 people were present at the first meeting in Moriah Chapel, many of whom had come out of curiosity. Roberts told them of his vision of the promised revival. They all made a commitment to the Lord that night to live for Christ. And then Evan Roberts was invited to other locations and the revival spread Within six months, over 100,000 people had come to Christ. The total population of Wales at that time was one million. This is one in ten of the people who come to know Christ. That's what happens when God comes. Don't you long for God to come to these? Don't you long for it? Does that grab your attention? Is God speaking to you? Is He addressing your heart? Is He grabbing you by His Spirit? I'm saying this is the time to pray. It's the time to pray. I'm not moving on you to clock up more hours. I'm not moving on you to drag you to more meetings. But I'm moving on you, says the Lord, because I want to engage my Holy Spirit with your human hearts. That's what he wants to do. Let me read you two more things and I'm just going to close. I could speak to you for hours on this subject. Both the 18th and 19th century revivals contributed staggering benefits to Britain's social life. It produced men and women who campaigned for the abolition of slavery. It brought women and children up from the mines and out of the factories. It brought boys down from the chimneys. Although not the only factor, it also contributed to a greater concern for prisoners, a reduction in the hours of work, and helped improve the living conditions of the poor. That's the love and the care of God. It's not abstract. It's not distant. It's real. It touches us here. It changes society. In 1904, Five Wales, these two comments. Who can give an account of the lasting blessings? Is it possible to record the sum total of family bliss, peace of conscience, brotherly love, and wholesome conversation that was gained? What of debts that were paid back and the enemies who were reconciled to one another? What of drunkards who became sober and prodigals who were restored? If you visited Howarth, it's not just known to be a tourist attraction. It's a place where a man called William Grimshaw, after becoming a Christian, he'd been a curate for 10 years and he was so grateful for his conversion that he decided that I'm going to live for Christ now because I'm so grateful that he hasn't made the rest of my life a godless cleric. And he started to affect or the Lord did through him this, this church in Haworth, which we can visit today. It had a an average attendance of 12 people at the time, and in one year, during the summer months, it gained a th- as a thousand people went there, and during the winter months, because it was harsh and because of the hill, 500 people went. He invited both Wesley and Whitfield to preach in that churchyard, and on both occasions, a crowd of the four to six thousand people listened to the gospel. When you visit Haworth remember that let it stir you, I don't want to just give you history, I'm more more concerned about you tonight and your expectancy or lack of it for God to move again in our time and in our day final thing example here a National Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Children, NSPCC an inspector in Wales he said this such was the Transformation that the revival brought to the people that a remarkable change took place in the homes that, that I visit I now no longer need to monitor several families whom I previously expected to prosecute this is what happens when God comes near we don't make, make bring it up we don't organise it we pray it down it starts with us being changed and challenged and, and prayer becomes bursting forth And so here's my two final things here's a prayer from Spurgeon and he said oh if I could believe there were some among you who would go home and pray for revival whose faith is large enough their love fiery enough to lead them from this moment to pray that God would appear among us and do wondrous things as in former times. And finally, I use the word finally quite a bit, by the way. And finally, here's a few verses from Psalm 85. If you want some help to learn how to pray for revival, then here's a starter for 10 for you. Let me read it to you. Restore us again, God our Saviour. Put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. And my final finally is this. Thursday and Friday I had the pleasure of being in Thornton Heath and the guy who leads one of the churches in Thornton Heath is an avid collector of books and uh, he's an avid collector of the original book as well and he showed me a letter he's got lots of original letters as well, he showed me a letter that John Spurgeon C.H. Spurgeon, sorry, wrote to a, a church leader, an unnamed church leader. And it's basically saying, I'm inviting you to join a few other others of his church leaders to a prayer meeting on Monday at 5. Um, come, because I expect God will change us there. Now, you see, Spurgeon seemed to have an expectation that I don't have at times. And I put it to you that you most probably don't have right now either, if we're honest. I've closed this book that I'm trying to write with this comment from someone who wrote after the Welsh Revival of 1904. If anyone asks why did God's fire fall on Wales in 1904 the answer is is that fire falls where it's likely to catch and spread? And whales provided the necessary kindling. Never let a generation grow up without a knowledge of past revivals, because that's the fuel for the coming one. Let me just pray and I'll close. Heavenly Father, we're so aware that you're a holy God. We're so aware that it's only mercy that makes us right with you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus. Thank you, he's the risen Lord Jesus. And we cry to you, Father. God, would you come and start with us? would you come and move on every heart in this room those who know you father would you cause something to happen in their life would you come near to them right now would you call them to be the kindling the people who pray the people who meet with you the people who will change the people who have a theophany of you that's life-changing and cause them Father to be the kindling of the fire that you want to send to this region Lord we pray that in your name and we pray for people in this room who don't know you Father oh and the awful sense of spending eternity apart from you Father we just say God come with your mercy open their heart today Lord God do what only you can do I can't do it Would you open their hearts, Father, and let your Spirit come and convict them and lead them to a certain knowledge that they're right with you. And they have peace with the God who made them. And we cry this in your wonderful name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.